Um, we were singing that last song, and um, just that phrase that we sang several times, uh, you make all things new, um, it just reminded me of the fact that really what Christianity is, it's a claim, it's a claim, it's a reality, but it's a claim that within its reality makes the claim that it promises to make all things new. Um, not by, I mean, you think about a lot of different types of groups, philosophies, theories, religions, they all make certain claims. Um, certain philosophies may claim, you know, if you follow our certain line of thinking, of the line of reasoning or rationalizing, um, then you, your life will be whole, your life will be made complete or better, or follow this particular religion, you'll have peace or inner peace, or however you would view that. But Christianity actually promises or um, offers is newness. Um, it offers new life, and it's the idea that death is not the end, that beyond death is life. So for a lot of times, some religions may say, well, we offer you this hope that once you die, you can have something after the end of your life, after the grave. And even though Christianity does involve that, it's actually greater than that. It's beyond that. It's, it's better than that, because Christianity promises that beyond the grave, is a whole nother reality. Like life doesn't start beyond the grave. Life starts now. There's a process of renewing a new life that's beginning right now, the moment you believe. And that's what Christianity promises. Now, some of us may have been through circumstances before where may, that may not have been your experience. And the fact of the matter is, is that even though, or irregardless of whether or not that was your actual experience with your interaction with Christianity, that doesn't in any way take away or detract from the fact that that's what Christianity claims. And so the reality is of trying to understand how the gospel plays into that is crucial. Because you may or may not have had good experiences with Christianity or whether or not and you, you know, may have been involved in Christianity or Christian circles and you never received any of that renewing that I'm talking about right now. In fact, you may look at your life and think, it's not any better. I don't feel any renewal. I don't feel renewed. I don't feel as if all things have been made new in my life experientially. And what I would encourage you is don't let that detract from you, from the reality, because hundreds of thousands of others have experienced that. Just because you have not experienced that to that degree does not necessarily devoid it. It means that maybe you need to keep pressing in understanding and digging deeper in terms of what the gospel is and how it applies into our lives. So the beauty of this is what I'm trying to say, and what Paul is going to begin to unpack for us now as we jump into the book of Ephesians, if you guys want, you can open up there right now, Ephesians chapter 4, is that he's talking about this community of people that have been renewed or been made whole. Uh, we described it last week as a healing community. And so before I begin to jump in to read the passage that we'll be taking a look at, is that what Paul is going to talk about, and we sort of summarized a little bit last week, uh, the first few chapters, and I realize there's always kind of a danger in terms of trying to uh, um, simplify something or to reduce something to simple cliches. Um, a lot oftentimes is lost in translation, but I, I, I hope at least the way that I rendered it would at least give some insight in terms of the overall or overarching narrative of the book of Ephesians. So the next slide, I'll show you kind of how things were broken down last week. So chapters one through three really describe or unpack for us these actions of this healing God. And those actions come by way of God, who we have basically been at odds with, God, whom we have, rather than 
interacting with God in terms of our Father, our Creator, our Lord. We've turned away from Him, and we've really taken life into our own hands and lived according to our own philosophies, our own ideas, and have denied um, God's voice into our life. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, you can raise your hand. We have some ushers that are really eager to get you guys Bibles. So um, they, they can't do their job fully, and they want to serve you. So raise your hands if you guys don't have a Bible, and they will get you a Bible quickly. And um, so the point of the matter is, is that God um, is at work bringing healing to people that have basically brought brokenness into this world. Brokenness, not just into this world, but brokenness into his world. It's his world. He created it. He created it for a purpose, for a distinct reason to bring life, to be, to be life-giving, life-generating. But we as humanity have actually done a number on this world and have caused great shame and brokenness and woundedness and hurt and sorrow and all of these things that we see and read about within a newspaper or on the internet and watch on television, that we see that and that is directly caused by us basically saying we think we can deal with this world in our own way in our own understanding. And what's happened is it brought a world of hurt and pain and shame and destruction. And what God says is I'm going to bring healing where there was once brokenness. I will bring wholeness where there was once destruction. I will bring order where there was once chaos and disorder and disarray. And this is what the story of really chapters 1 through 3 looks like. And what Paul is going to say is going to look like those who were once alienated from God or those who were once marginalized or separated from God, they will be brought near those who were once uh, part of the brokenness, those that were once part of, they had the, you know, if you think of it this way, they had the actual spray paint can in their hand while they were vandalizing God's good creation. They were caught red-handed that even though they were part of the problem, we, meaning not they, but we have been part of the problem brokenness, God has summoned us, called us to himself, not to judge us, but through Jesus, to be judged in our place so that we can be set free. This is what God does. He brings healing. So we see, first of all, chapters 1 through 3 in summary, big summary, overarching summary, uh, the actions of a healing God. Chapters 4 through 6, Paul begins to sort of, in the very practical uh, outworking of this, begins to describe the actions of this healing community. So here's a healing community, this community of people that have been healed by God. Now Paul's going to define and describe what the actions of this healing community then begin to look like. Because the fact of the matter is, is that every single one of us, if you're here, you're a Christian, you've met Jesus, you're walking with Christ, we'll unpack more what that looks like in a second. But if, if that is your experience, then you have begun to enter into this process of healing. In other words, healing has come to you to some degree. It may be healing of your wounds, healing of your defilement. So in other words, if you have lived a life of uh, immorality, and you have defiled or ruined, soiled, if you think of it that way, your soul, and you feel shame. If you are an addict to porn, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You feel grimy after doing what you do. You feel grimy after sexual immorality. But if that's someone like you, and you are defined by that griminess, you come to Christ, and he begins to redefine you. You're not defined by that. He washes you. He cleanses you. You may, that may not be your thing. That may not be your vice that you've been tripped up by. It may have been something more along the lines of, you know, you've been angry. You've been the type of person that have uh, had offenses against other people. And rather than being free to forgive, free to love, free to invite, free to welcome, 
free to show grace and hospitality to other people. Uh, instead, you find yourself withholding grace, withholding love, withholding hospitality because of this wound in your soul that you come to Christ and Christ begins to heal that. He begins to show you that your identity is not found based upon the wound or the hurt, the defilement that was caused against you or if you have been addicted to immorality type scenarios, you're not defined by that. You're defined by somebody new. And Jesus begins to breathe wholeness, healing into your life. You're a new creation. And so you're a new community the way this begins to work. But that then begins to work its way outward. So we kind of looked at this a little bit. Now, if you were here last week, a lot of this is sort of review. If you haven't been with us, uh, it's all brand new for you. So the point of the matter is, is that this healing community begins sort of, think of it in three concentric circles. The first uh, circle really is this community we call the church. Healing begins to work within the church. So that means that when we gather together like this, but also like throughout the rest of the week, which you can't see right now, but we call them community groups, or you gather for like little hangout times with some of your friends at the parks. If you're a mom, you got a bunch of little kids, and you get energy out, so you go hang out at a park, let the kids run around, and you interact and have some little dialogue. And, or if you meet with other people at Starbucks in the morning or another coffee shop in town, uh, and you do stuff like that to really unite as friends, at some point, you will step on each other's toes, you will offend people, and you'll need to work through those offenses. Because if you don't, what ends up happening is you begin to divide. You begin to walk away. You're like, I ain't going to that church anymore. Those people are not nice. I'm not going to go to that community group anymore because they did not do things for me and I'm offended. Or I had expectations of them that did not get met. I'm frustrated with them. And so at some point, you have to deal with that stuff or you will then feel the need to just remove yourself. That is a divorce. That is separation. That is breaking Ranks. Now, in some cases, some circumstances, there are healthy, clean breaks that need to happen because you're in an unhealthy environment, maybe an unhealthy church, unhealthy community group, unhealthy relationship, and it's actually sucking life from your soul because it's unhealthy. It's not life-giving. It's like a vampire. It sucks blood from you, and you die. The point of the matter is, what's happening is God's creating this community that is learning to live with each other, learning to love one another learning to deal with offenses in a way that actually leads to more healing. Does that make sense? You guys following? Because this is really the community. This is it. This is, like, we can talk all we want about memorizing scriptures and how to defend the faith and how to, you know, put Jehovah's Witnesses in their place and when the rapture is going to happen. And we can sit around and talk all we want about these types of secondary issues. Just beneath the surface, we are so stinking shallow because we will not do the hard work of dealing with the stuff that leads to true flourishing. And what Paul is saying is that if we are really going to do work with the gospel and be a community that shines brightly the beauty of Jesus in this world that is nothing but filled with darkness and hurt, we have to first let this God shine like light into our brokenness, shine like light into our darkness and begin to bring healing to us. And then through us, let those little rays of light begin to break forth into other friendships and relationships, beginning with the church, beginning with the family. Because it's one of the reasons why um, the writer John says, if you call yourself a Christian and you hate your brother whom you can see and you claim to love God who you can't see, 
He's like, do you understand the incongruity? He doesn't exactly say it like that. Those are my words. But the point of the matter is, is that there's an incongruity there. You can't, there's an inconsistency in that reality. Saying, I love God. Well, where's God? I don't see him. But I really hate my brother, who I can see. But we've had this like ongoing offense going on and on. And John's saying, you don't understand the gospel. Because the gospel is loving your brother whom you can see as a way of shining forth to the greatness of this God who we can't see. In other words, through my actions of loving those whom I can see, my brothers, my sisters in Christ, then my neighbors, and then the final concentric circle is, are my enemies. But if I cannot love them, if I cannot demonstrate this healing work of the gospel at work in my life to them, then no one's going to believe my message. No one's going to believe in my little story about, oh, there's a God somewhere. He's invisible, and he loves you. If people don't believe that, that, that's a, that totally makes a lot of sense. If they cannot see the story of love, wholeness, healing, reconciliation, forgiveness at work in my life. You guys following? Is this easy? No, this is really, really really hard, but we got to do the work to try to understand what it is to begin to make it work. So that's kind of setting this up. So first of all, chapters one through three, actions of a healing God. Chapters four through six, actions of a healing community. And I kind of summarize it in this little bit of a statement right here. It says this, the healing community that is, uh, that's comprised. So this healing community, in order for it to do what it's supposed to do in this world, it needs regular reminding, regular coaching, Regular guidance, regular upholding, regular instruction, regular training. Because I don't know if you realize it or not, but most of us don't come by default with the set of instructions and how to live out everything we just talked about. Or, if you're like me, you're always forgetting, right? Someone does something wrong. I mean, you can even be driving away from church here and someone cuts you off and you're like, you idiot you want to cuss you want to say something bad but the point of the matter is you're like oh let's wait i just i just preached the sermon about that and i shouldn't be talking like that but the point of the matter is we need to be regularly reminded of this stuff because we forget and that reminding that instructing that coaching that guidance is what paul describes here as we need to be equipped so for this community of healed people uh, who've interacted with this healing God to go forth in these concentric circles of church life, then to our neighbors, then to our enemies, we need to be regularly instructed and guided and coached and informed as to how to do this. And to do this, God provides a, a, a means within the church to educate, to train, to equip, to help for the purpose of this healing going forth, going public, if you would. So with that being said, Here's the little statement that I wrote. The healing community is comprised of equipping saints, so people that do the equipping, who equip the disciples, so we'll unpack what disciples are in a second, in order to embody the works of service to advance healing and maturity, beginning with the church reflecting outward. So that works of service and the advance of healing and maturity are things that we just talked about earlier, like forgiveness, like loving our enemies, like embodying reconciliation and all these other things that we've talked about. So Point of the matter is, let's jump in. Let's read at Ephesians chapter 4. I'll pick it up at verse 11, read down to verse 13. We'll only cover a small amount of uh, scripture today. Um, 
But again, as I said last week, that a lot of this is really dense, and so I don't want to rush through it. I want to be able to just take some time and to unpack it and to let it uh, begin to inform and shape our understanding as to how this whole healing process of this community begins to actually have impact. I think it's worthwhile for us to do the hard work of just kind of pausing or slowing down um, to try to understand it so that we can really truly get it, so that we can really truly be who God calls us to be. So, verse 11 says this, And he, it's Jesus, gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the pastors and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So, that's where I want to stop. I want to pray before we jump in and just ask God's help, and then we'll begin to look at this. So, God, we ask you right now that you would just inform our minds, and we ask as well, God, that you would help um, offload some of the baggage maybe that we have brought in that kind of taint or shade what your scripture says to us and how it informs us. And God, we, we pray that you'd help us to see what this has to say to us and with fresh eyes, a fresh understanding, with an open heart. God, so that we can see that your aim, your desire, your goal, in spite of what our actual experience has been, is to break, make all things new. It's to bring healing. It's to bring re- restoration, to reconstruct lives where there's been nothing but brokenness. So we ask God for your help. And we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, there's three things I really want to look at that kind of um, are sort of embodied in the passage that we just read that, and also as well kind of in the little statement that I'd written. So the first thing we'll take a look at, and we won't actually do it in the exact same order in which that little statement that I read uh, to you guys earlier about the healing community is comprised of equipping saints and equipped disciples and so forth. What I want to do is I want to look at, first of all, um, equipped disciples. So we'll first of all start with the church that are viewed as this community that is an equipped community. There's a purpose, which we'll get into uh, next after that. But first, we'll start with the equipped disciples. Second thing we'll take a look at is equipping disciples. Who are the disciples that actually uh, provide the equipping or the coaching, the training, however you want to think of it. And then thirdly, we'll try to understand and unpack a little bit about what are the works of service um, that Paul writes about um, in the building of the body of Christ. Try to understand what that is. So first of all, let's jump in and try to understand a little bit about the equipped disciples. The equipped disciples, the church. Again, this is a community of people that are healed by God to then be a healing community within the church itself, within the community at large, and then ultimately even extending to that dark uh, community of people that we oftentimes don't like to have anything to do with other than shame and shun called our enemies. That this healing begins to extend outward towards that. So um, first of all, we got to deal with the question of disciple. What is a disciple? And I chose that word disciple, even though Paul doesn't necessarily use the word disciple because I think it's implied there. Now, I want to kind of talk a little bit about this because I think this is important because we tend to oftentimes think that a Christian is however you want to define it or fill in the blank. But what I want to point out is that throughout the Bible, the word, and throughout the New Testament, I should say, the word that's used to define or describe followers of Jesus is the word disciple, as opposed to the word Christian. For example, in the New Testament, uh, the word disciple actually appears 250 plus times. 250 times it's actually used to describe those people that have actually followed Jesus. 
as opposed to the word Christian that's used to define those who follow Jesus. Why is this important? Why is this significant? Well, because we live in a culture that tends to think of those that follow Jesus exclusively in terms of the word Christian. Not that there's anything wrong with that per se, but I don't think it fully encompasses the full reality of what a Christian slash disciple is. Here's why. Just like anything, words can become cliché. The word Christian, in my opinion, has actually become very cliche. I was reminded of this yesterday. I read an article online. I'm not even exactly certain what it was, but it was some sort of a, a, a site, a kind of a dating site. It was like a hookup site, friends with benefit type place, where for, for couples that are married that want to be able to have sex on the side and not be known about it. And they said the number one ranked person or group people group on there are born-again Christians. I was like... Okay, A, is this the onion? I'm not even really sure. Like maybe, that was my first thought. This has got to be like a joke website. But they, it went on to basically say that the, they actually asked people to kind of describe what is your religious affiliation. So that showed me that there's this vacuous definition as to what Christian is. That people, in other words, they're ill-informed as to what the concept or idea of Christian is. So it's one of the reasons why I want to basically say that um, the New Testament defines or describes followers of Jesus in terms of disciples. So what is a disciple? A disciple, obviously, oftentimes we think of it as being like maybe a learner or a student. I've heard some people describe it as. But it's not exclusively that, because if we just simply leave it as a learner or a student, then what that tends to imply within our culture is that it's merely somebody that learns information from somebody. And a disciple is more than just somebody that learns information about Jesus. That's part of the problem, I think, in the American church today. Is we have a lot of learners, people that know stuff about Jesus, know stuff about God. They memorize scriptures. They know certain bits and pieces about theological uh, concepts within the church. And they're maybe aware of the cultural hot topics and hot buttons and want to argue theological stuff. But what they really don't understand is they're not really truly following the life. They don't look like Jesus. They don't act like Jesus. They don't pray like Jesus. They don't live like Jesus. And the reason is because what you have is a person that is just filled with knowledge, but is really not really a disciple of Jesus. They may be a disciple in the sense of a learner, but not in the sense of an actual true disciple. So another way to think of disciple, perhaps one of the closest words that we can use in the English that translates to the uh, ancient word disciple would be the word apprentice. An apprentice is somebody that not only learns information from their master, who it is that they're doing this apprentice under, but they also learn how the apprentice operates or the, the leader operates. So as an apprentice, they're learning not just the, the, the information. It's not just the reading the manual that the owner of the business, whatever it is that they're apprenticing under does, but they're learning how they do it and even the theory behind why they do it. That's what an apprentice is. In a lot of ways, that's what a disciple is. So take a look at the next slide. And I'll let Jesus kind of fill out our understanding or inform us as to what a disciple is. Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, even though the word is not used necessarily here, um, most of the other contexts describe this is what Jesus is describing as a disciple, a follower of Jesus. So he says this, Jesus said, come to me, or come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. You can think of this in basically three specific ways. First of which, a disciple is one who knows and follows Jesus. Jesus said, come follow me. Disciple is one that has basically looked at their life and says, I've been following myself. I've been following my instincts, following my own sense of direction. I've gotten myself lost. 
I don't want to do that anymore. Or I've been following the sets of directions from somebody else or this teacher or this philosopher or this leader or this particular person, this moralistic teacher, um, and I've got myself lost. And I don't want to be lost anymore. Jesus says, come follow me. So a disciple, first and foremost, is someone that is not only knowing but following Jesus. So they are learning about Jesus. There is an educational element to knowing who Jesus is. So in other words, what we know about Jesus does aid our ability to follow him. So uh, as a church, it's one of the reasons why we teach the Bible is because we want to inform you, but we don't want to just inform you. So in other words, if we're just a group of people that have a lot of Bible knowledge, and so we gather and we uh, showcase our Bible knowledge, but we don't live like Jesus, meaning we accept and love one another like Jesus, what you have is a very contentious setting of everybody wanting to showcase what they know. They're smart, and that place is not a fun place to be in. And unfortunately, that's the way sometimes some churches or some small groups or some settings can actually become, where everybody is trying to showcase what they know, but in reality, the church is actually more than just simply that, because it's disciples, people that are being shaped into those who follow and know Jesus. So the second thing is, is that they are being changed by Jesus. They're being changed by Jesus. Jesus said, come follow me and I will make you. The emphasis is upon I will make you. I will be the one that reshape you, reform you, re, uh, uh, give you life to make you somebody new. I will change and transform your desires. This is what Jesus says to us will happen. Now this is an important thing because the reality is, is that a disciple is somebody that should be on a regular basis changing, being remade. Now, we cannot gauge our own maturity on our own. We can't necessarily look at ourselves and be like, you know what, I'm way more following Jesus today than I was a year later, or a year ago. I'm way more loving today than I was a year ago. I'm way more patient today than I was a year ago. And let's say, uh, and if you're not involved in any of the body's life, and you're just doing your own little self-assessment, because for one, we always tend to add a little bit more. We kind of move the decimal point a little bit over just to make ourselves look a little bit better. What we really need is somebody else who can speak objectively into our lives and just say, yeah, you are more kind, and yes, there is more patience going on in your life, and they can speak. And that's a hard thing to do. I mean, have you ever thought about like actually, actually asking someone, hey, what do you think about me? I mean, based upon what you know of our relationship, based upon the time that we've done together, what do you think? Of, do you feel like I'm more kind or more generous? What, what do you think about my spiritual walk and my experience of following Jesus today as opposed to, say, a year ago? I mean, for me, the closest person in my life that knows me more and better than anybody else is my wife. And that's a scary thought. And I know my wife loves me. So I realize, like, anything my wife's going to say to me um, it's always going to be out of love. Like, she's committed to me, I'm committed to her, and we've been doing this for 23-plus years. And the reality is, is that that's still scary. But a disciple is one that's being changed by Jesus. And thirdly, it's a person that's on mission with Jesus. In other words, they've rearranged their life, you've rearranged your life to basically say, my life doesn't belong to myself, I follow Jesus. Now, it doesn't mean that everyone goes out and be a missionary. It doesn't mean that everybody, you know, drops what they do and jumps into the ministry. Uh, we'll talk more about that in a second. But what it means is it says that, Jesus, where do you want me to go? How do you want me to live my life? What do you want me to do? What field of uh, life do you want me to get involved in? Uh, 
How do you want me to use maybe my degree? And where do you want me to use my degree? Those are questions that become relevant because it's not you who's leading your life. It's Jesus who's leading your life. And you see everything that you've been given as a gift from God to be used as a means of showing love back to God, but then also showing love to others. So really in short, if you think of it this way, a disciple is one who knows, follows Jesus, one who's being changed by Jesus, one who is on mission with Jesus, or to think of it this way, uh, it involves the head, it involves the heart, it involves the hands. The head, what you know, what you understand, what's informing you, involves uh, the heart, what your desires are, what's shaping your desires, what's sculpting your desires, what's satisfying your desires, and the hands. What are you using your hands to do, to bring about healing, wholeness, or are you using your hands to bring brokenness or to contribute to the brokenness that are already existent within this world? This is what a disciple is. So based upon this definition, some may look at themselves and think, well, I, I, I'm a Christian in that uh, I was maybe brought into a Christian home or you know, uh, raised in a Christian home, a Christian environment. And so in that light, I think it's important for us to at least make a distinction that um, disciples, all disciples are Christians, but not all Christians at least in the way that we would culture define it, are disciples. So it's important for you to make sure that if you're at all, in any way, shape, or form, confused about it, that you go back to the words of Jesus and ask, does that define your experience? Is that who you are? Is that what Jesus has called you to be and to follow him as? So, with that being said, as a disciple, what Paul is going to say is that they are equipped. The word equipped um, is going to say that they're equipped for the works of service is a great word. And this word equipped basically means to reconcile. There's a couple ways in which this word can be used. The word uh, means to reconcile, as in two opposing political parties coming together, right? Um, it's very hard, perhaps even dream or envision that type of world in which two parties actually come together. We live in a bipartisan, constant, polarized uh, environment where everybody seems to be bagging on another political party. But what this word means is it basically means to reconcile, to take two opposing sides and join them together. Another way in which I identify or think about this word, equip also means to set bones, as in a surgery or a surgeon come in and take a bone that's broken or fractured or compound fracture or that's out of joint and then to reset it so that there's wholeness. Or another way to think of this particular word is the idea of being restored or uh, to prepare, and the idea is all of these words coming together, you get the word, or the idea, or at least the concept of health, wholeness, healing. So what Paul is saying is that God has actually called these disciples to be equipped, to be given, to be uh, having have items contributed, given over to their lives so that they could be part of this healing process that then begins to resonate out, go forth out into this world of all of these various Circles, so that wholeness can come forth. This is how, as the church lives like this. Now, mind you, this is not saying the church is somehow going to issue in the kingdom of God or a utopia or make the world somehow function better, heaven. We're not the ones that are responsible to bring heaven on earth. That's God. One day Jesus will come back. But until that day comes, as the church moves forth and is a part of this healing process, what it does do is it retells the story in action as well as deed that the fact that there is a God that is coming to bring restoration one day. 
there will come a new heavens and an earth. How do we know that? Because newness has already begun to be transposed in our lives, resonating outward. Does that make sense? You guys follow along so far? Good. All right. So we got to be equipped. So there's equipped disciples. How are they equipped? By, secondly, equipping disciples. Equipping disciples, which leads us to the second slide, or the second thing, is that equipping disciples. And what Paul says this gets done in verse 11 is he begins to unpack this for us. I'll read it again. He says this. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Now, just prior to that, what Paul said, and we kind of looked at it a little bit last week, was that what you have is Jesus, who had resurrected from the dead and then was ascended into heaven, that when he rose from the dead, he also gave gifts. And the image that Paul borrows was from an Old Testament passage, I believe it was like Psalm 68, and the picture was that of a king that came into town victorious, and usually when a king would come into town, whatever types of spoils they gathered from battle, they would then deliver uh, in abundance to their loyal um, uh, to, to the loyal people that are people that are loyal to the king, loyal subjects. And so the image that Paul is saying is that in the same way, Jesus uh, died, went into the grave, Jesus rose again from the grave, and then ultimately Jesus ascended into heaven, which is another way of basically saying he is king of kings, lord of lords over all things, and that he's also come to give gifts so that these gifts would be part of the healing process within the church so that the church would know how to heal itself by working through the tough things, loving each other, learning how to forgive one another, learning how to be reconciled to one another. And Paul says, all of this is a part of growing in maturity in their understanding of who God is, of living forth, demonstrating forth what the gospel is all all about. Does that make sense? So the point that Paul is going to say is that he's given these leaders or these people in the church, people that are gifted with certain gifts to help equip. So if you think of it this way, there are those that are in the church, they have um, the ministry of the word, and there are those that have the ministry of deed. Now, that doesn't exclude those who have the ministry of the deed from ever doing the ministry of the word, nor does it exclude those who have the ministry of the word from doing any ministry of the deed. But the point of the matter is, is that ministry of the word and ministry of the deed work together for one common end, which is to point out to this world that's in darkness that we have this great God that is about bringing healing. So what he's saying. So, what Paul does is he begins to point out that Jesus has come and the gifts that he's given to the church in this particular setting so that the church can be equipped are five gifts or four, depending upon how you would read them. So the first of which is he says apostles. The word apostle basically meant or means sent out one. So think of it this way. A disciple was one that followed Jesus. An apostle was a disciple then that was basically called or designated, hey, I want you to go to this city and plant a new work or start a new church. In some ways, you can think of it, they were sort of an entrepreneurial uh, heart, entrepreneurial spirit that would then go into a new area, a new zone, and plant a church. So there was, if you can think of it this way, there was an, there was an office of all of these gifts so there was a way in which you can see an office because other pastoral letters, for example, First and Second Timothy and Titus, um, Paul writes about what would appear to be an office, meaning that there was a role within the church designated to uh, individuals that were pastors or teachers or evangelists. Um, most would argue that that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about the office, per se, as he is talking about the gift. So that gift that's given to individuals is for the purpose of helping the church 
uh, equipping the church so that they can be people that demonstrate healing in this world that's full of brokenness. So the first of which, again, is apostle. The word apostle can also mean one that goes out and does, and oftentimes we see that apostles would pioneer and start these new movements, new, uh, what would seem as if the, that office of apostle um, passed away um, at some point in the first century, and the office of apostleship does not seem to be still in existence. However, the action of apostleship, the gifting of apostleship, probably, no doubt, I would believe, actually still is in existence. It's basically best identified or seen within the, uh, say, the ministry or the activity of church planting. So when somebody, or say, for example, a missionary, someone that says we're going to go to a new country, we're going to go to a new zone, a new area, a new culture, a new city, and we're going to plant a work of God, gather a community of people, demonstrate to them the healing nature of this great God, see people get healed and set free and transformed by the gospel, and we will form this community by God's grace, and we will see this community then begin to grow and become something amazing. That's what my wife and I did when we moved up here some 23 years ago. Is that Calvary Slow did not exist. It was not here. This was not happening. Um, what did happen when we first moved up here was we had a little house, and what little house we had was a little apartment, and we said, let's just open up our house, and let's have dinner, invite anybody who wants to come over, and we'll just open up our house to them, and we will have food, and we will talk about Jesus, and we, back in those days, actually played music, and played a guitar, and cracked it out sometimes, and sang, and God, thank you that there's none of that recorded, and the fact of the matter is, <laughs> is, that, is that we would just form a community, and people were basically getting changed, and transformed, healed, set free from sin, set free from addiction, set free from uh, all these things that were basically adding and contributing to their brokenness. Jesus was forming a community. And what you see today is sort of the outgrowth of that which started on 533 Pismo Street, downtown San Luis Obispo, 23 years ago. It's amazing to see, or actually, not 23 years ago, over 20 years ago. And the reality is, is that it's, it's a good thing. So when we moved up here, my wife and I just kind of felt ourselves just eager, excited to, to do something. We, we didn't really know exactly what it was going to look like, how it was going to be. I just knew I wanted to teach the Bible and gather people together and disciple people and spend some time with them and, and help them out and pray for them, and do all that type of stuff. So in other words, the reality is, is anybody can do this. So people can sometimes look at someone like me and be like, oh, well, he's specially trained. Look, I didn't, I didn't even go to college. I didn't go to Bible school. I didn't go to seminary. Um, I graduated from high school. And I think my graduating GPA was probably in the like, high ones. I'm serious. Like I, it was because I didn't apply myself. But the point of the matter is, um, look, anybody can do this if God gifts, God calls. And so what happened was these people would go out and they would just plant works, start something new. They, they, they saw something be done or not being done. They're like, something needs to be done here. One of my favorite stories is sometimes women can be, feel a little bit intimidated because women might be like, well, where's my place in the church? Seems like there's a lot of men. Where's my place? Look, the reality is, God calls women, even in, the, throughout, even in the New Testament, there are occasions where it would even seem that there were women that were actually identified as apostles or with at this apostolic gifting. One of the chief examples of that is this gal by the name of Amy Carmichael. If you have no idea who she is, you know, Google her, look her up. She's an amazing woman. She basically was a lady living kind of in the north of England, I think it was, and she basically just saw that there was nothing happening for all these women that were working in the factories during the industrial age. And she was like, something needs to be done. All these ladies are working 
crazy hours. They're dying in the factories. It's a horrific scenario. It's like a sweatshop for all these ladies. They're like slaves in there. And none of these ladies know Jesus. And when they come out of work, they just get drunk. And they're so messed up. And they're getting raped by other dudes because they're laying around on the street getting drunk. And I want to do something to help them. She started, literally started a church. And hundreds and hundreds of people would come there and hear her tell them about Jesus. There's just, there's just a lady, I think, with an apostolic gift that just says, someone needs to help these ladies. No one else is doing it, and maybe God wants me to do it. So my point is that I'm going to provoke in you something to think about this. Like, like anybody with God's gift, God's call to do this can do it. This is not like someone special who has a unique you know, ability or recognition within a church. God equips people as he wills for the purpose of moving forth this healing community into this world. So that's what we see a little bit with apostles, moving forward. Prophets. Prophets were people that kind of foretold God's word. Sometimes we think of prophets as being people that foretold the future. In some cases, in the Old Testament especially, they did. There are even cases in the New Testament where they foretold some certain events. But think of a prophet, first and foremost, or prophecy, first and foremost, as somebody foretelling something that God speaks to them. This could be proclaiming simply the scripture. This could be someone uh, sensing something in their heart and they say, I, I, I sense God leading this or God speaking forth this. Now, the Bible does say that when prophecies are to be given, they're to be basically taken back to the word. So if it's inconsistency with the scripture, if it's inconsistency with it, then obviously it's not to be received or recognized. If it's something that doesn't contradict it, it's to be believed. The Bible says don't despise prophecy. And the purpose of it, again, is not to just simply help people so that they can feel better about themselves. The idea of prophecy is that has a larger corporate body hold, corporate meaning body, to bring them into healing so that then as a healing community they can then go forth into this world, into these concentric circles and to bring forth healing in all these areas. The point of the matter is, is that God gives uh, apostles and then prophets to equip these saints so that they can be whole, so they can be equipped to then be this healing community that they're there to be. Uh, thirdly, evangelist. Evangelist comes from the Greek word evangelion, basically means someone who proclaims or speaks forth. Obviously, the implication here is always evangelist or speak forth or communicate the gospel. In fact, the word gospel comes from that very same word. So if you think of evangelizing, think of it maybe in the English word as gospeling, heralding, speaking forth. Um, the word gospel, again, is one of those classic words that has become simply cliche in our modern culture. We think of gospel as just simply uh, maybe uh, one, of the, one of the four books that's, you know, the beginning books of the New Testament. Or gospel being like, oh yeah, that's gospel, that's, there's a website that says gospel something or another, you know. Um, but the reality is, gospel in the first century, uh, the way it would have been identified or understood was gospel uh, and, uh, was, was literally a word that was, that was completely connected to uh, politics, the world of politics. And for example, when Caesar would go forth into a new village, a new city, a new area, and let's say he would annex it towards or for himself, for his kingdom, for his government. And so what he would do, then go into the city, or he would send somebody to go into the city prior to him, and that person would then proclaim they were called an evangelion. They would announce, and what they would say would be something like this. Caesar is now king over this entire region. It all belongs to Rome. They were literally gospeling. New Testament writers come along and actually borrow that language out of politics. and says, that's a great word, to announce 
the forthcoming of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so what they would do, they would go into a new region, new area, and they would announce, proclaim gospel, the risen king, the true risen king, that even though he was conquered by death, he conquered death by rising from the grave. And now he is king of kings and lord of lords over all things. That means that where there was once the landscape ravaged by sin, rebellion, brokenness, shame, defilement, all of that is in the process of being undone by this new king who has set up a new kingdom that brings healing. Just the same way, maybe to a lesser degree, the way when Caesar would come into a new area, new region, annexed by the Roman government, then they would begin to make new improvements. They would put in new roads. They would build new temples. They would create a whole new culture and society around Roman culture and history, which, for the most part, adopted a lot of Greek, Roman, uh, Greek culture and history. But the point of the matter is, this is what Paul was saying, is that there are those that have this gift of announcing and proclaiming the kingdom. These were called evangel- evangelists. Uh, finally, pastors and teachers. Now, a lot of people kind of disagree as to whether or not are these individual or are these together. I'm just going to kind of put them together even though they may or may not be individuals. The point of the matter is, is that there are those that are called uh, pastors. The word pastor literally is the Greek word that means shepherd. It's the very same word that Jesus actually spoke of himself. He says, I am the good pastor. I'm the good shepherd. It's the exact same word that's used. In fact, here's another little bit of information. Um, that particular word that's actually used here is a noun, meaning the rest of the New Testament describes pastors, actually describes pastors in verb form, meaning it is a group of people that pastor, that do the work of shepherding or caring for the souls of people. Now, back in that day, no one grew up with this innate desire that says, you know what I really want to do when I grow up? I want to be a shepherds. Shepherds were exactly what you would think shepherds were, right? It was like grunt work. It was the job nobody wanted. Nobody was proud of being a shepherd. Shepherds were low life. Shepherds were marginalized. Shepherds were not accepted into the main corpus of the community because you would imagine they had this funky smell about them all the time. Why? Because they're always with sheep that are smelly and that are dirty and they're always getting themselves into trouble. So a shepherd is always needing to scoop them up and carry them on his shoulder and bring them back. And if one has a broken leg, he's got to fix it and repair it. If something has gone wrong or it's you know, been in the mouth of a wolf or so, something like that, he's got blood all over him now. So a shepherd was not a good job. No, no, people were not desirous of this job. But they use that word to transpose into the church and say, you know what, there are people that tend to the needs of the flock of God and they are called shepherds. They do the grunt work. They help those that are hurting. Now, finally, the idea is teachers. He says there are those that teach, inform, instruct, guide, educate those on the gospel and help them to understand. So, again, why there seems to be a close connection between pastors and teachers is because all pastors, all pastors, shepherds, are to be teachers. But not all teachers are shepherds. Maybe some of you have been you know, in churches before where you're like, the pastor's really awesome, but he doesn't really seem to care about anybody. Maybe that's an overstatement. Maybe he does actually care about people. Maybe there's a lot of people that he cares about that you really don't know uh, for whom he's actually caring about. But maybe he's, you know, he's got a gift of, of teaching, and maybe he's in, maybe not in the right place. Or maybe you know, The point of the matter is, is that all pastors are to be teachers, but not necessarily all teachers are to be are, are going to have the gift of pastoring. So the point of the matter is, is I think all pastors should 
be able to help come alongside sheep that are hurting and help them or provide structures so that they can be helped. But the point of the matter is, is that all of these are given by Jesus as a gift by Jesus to the church so the church can be equipped. Now, question. In the day and age in which we live in, there is a lot of suspicion, a lot of skepticism about leaders. And oftentimes, leaders are those that kind of adopt these various titles of apostle or pastor or prophet or teacher or whatever the case is. And there's a tendency to kind of view these things with a lot of, suspic- a lot of suspicion because there's been a lot of abuse. There have been false prophets, false pastors that have come in and rather, and again, this is not new to our day. This has been even going on since back in Paul's day. Pastors, people that would come in and say, we're the pastor, we're going to start the church, we're going to lead the church. But they will oftentimes dip into the pockets of people and steal their money or steal other things in which they have or steal their dignity and steal their time and oftentimes use them as a means to simply pad their own life with comfort while the rest of the people suffer. But true shepherds, pastors, teachers, evangelists, so on and so forth that Paul points out, really work with the aim of equipping, helping the saints to be this community, helping the disciples to be this healing community so that they can be those that embody this healing in this world that's full of sickness and brokenness and hurt and shame and one day, ultimately, judgment. So this is what we see Paul is saying that takes place and happens. Finally, and I'll finish with this. He talks about they're to be equipped for works of service. And I'm going to spend just a very small amount of time on this because over the next uh, couple more weeks, we're going to spend more time understanding what does this look like? What, how does it begin to work its way out? And how do we identify true spiritual maturity? So he says that they're to be trained for or given equipping for works of service and then ultimately the building up of the body of Christ. So two things are to be trained for the work of ministry. Secondly, trained for the building up of the body of Christ. So... That's the point, the idea of work of ministry. Uh, the word ministry can also be rendered uh, service. So the church, this is a question then, um, who is to be the ones in the church community, church gathering to really be living forth healing throughout this world? There's a tendency, sometimes people can come, especially in our, and I would say in a lot of ways, backwards form of Christianity, where in a lot of American churches today, there's the tendency to kind of look at there's one or a handful of guys uh, that are trained, specially rendered, and specially ready to be the leaders of the church, and their job is to lead the work of the ministry. They may or may not be necessarily kind of a celebrity status, and so typically the way the church kind of works or is constructed, that people, like the main corpus, main body people come, they listen specifically, and then the rest of their life, uh, rest of the week, they don't even think about doing works of service until the next Sunday where they come back where they're kind of goaded to do it by the pastor. But the point of the matter is, is that this is sort of a backwards way of thinking because in reality, the emphasis here in the text is not upon these people that uh, or have these five gifts, or these group of people that have these five gifts, but it's upon the family, the church community that has been activated by the healing of God and has been called to go forth to demonstrate the healing of God but they have been equipped so that they can do that. So in other words, the whole point of pastors and teachers and evangelists is simply to enable, to equip the church to embody the work of healing in this world. So the reality is that every single one of you, if you're here and you're a Christian, that's you. Your job is to live this out. Not a professional clergy slash lady kind of split or divide, but 
all of you, if you're a Christian, that means that God has equipped you. Now, that may feel a little bit scary. That might feel as if it may be a task or an order that's far beyond you or taller than you, uh, than you can handle. But this is where God says, I will be your shepherd, and I will give you my Holy Spirit, and my Holy Spirit will enable you, and he will drive away cowardice, and he will help you. He will give you strength in those moments where you feel weak, and he will give you the words in those moments where you forget what to say, and he will create those opportunities in those moments where you don't really know what to do. He, and he will do all of this because he is alive at work in each of you so that as you go forth in this world, you will bear testimony, bear witness of the risen Christ. That this God that we serve is a God that says and makes the claim, the radical claim, I have come to make all things new. This is the God that we come to. is a God that brings renewal. A God that washes us. A God that cleanses us from all of these other things that we identify or try to identify with or we feel as if have been pinned upon us by the culture or by someone else's sin against us. Jesus says, no, Come from forth from that and be made whole. Be clean. I'll give you a new name, a new identity, a new life, new power, new heart, new desire so that you can live, so that you're not bound by the sin, by the shame, by the stain, by the offense, but that you're free. It doesn't master you anymore. You're, ma- you're a master of it. That's what true freedom is. That's what Jesus calls us to. And that's what the gospel promises, is it calls us to come to Jesus, to be clean, to let go of all of these other things that have identified us, identified us to come into a new family, a new healing community, be, re, receive the healing that he gives, be trained and educated and informed and coached and guided by the gifts that Jesus gives to the church, the apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers and evangelists, so that then you can then go forth into this world and embody the restorative and healing work of Christ in this world. That's what God calls us to. It's amazing. Some of you are here today because you've received that healing of Christ. Some of you here today, you're still kind of working through what that looks like. Some of you here today, you maybe heard this message, uh, this concept, this idea for many, many years. Maybe you're very familiar with it, and maybe you're still trying to figure out how does this work out, because theoretically, I, it kind of makes sense to me, but practically or, uh, or experientially, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. There's an incongruity between all those types of things, um, but the point of the matter is no matter what place you're at in your life, what types of circumstances you're going through, what types of uh, bad experiences you may have had in the church, maybe even have been with uh, abusive leaders that have had these roles and have abused them and have left you broken or wounded, or whether or not you're here and you're not even a Christian, the one amazing thing is that we are all bid, we're all given this call to come to the table to eat, to partake. We're invited to a feast, a feast that King Jesus gives, a feast that no matter who you are, no matter what type of past you've come from, it, it's, it's not what defines you at this table. It's not the way this world works. The world works in so many different distinctive type ways. It says, you can only be my friend, you can only be part of my group, you can only be part of my club if you fit this particular profile. If you're you know, a certain look or a certain age or a certain weight or a certain whatever, have a certain amount of money, then you can fit into this club. But Jesus says, all are welcome to this table to come and dine and be free, to be healed. 
And the reason why we know this and the reason why we believe this is because what happened in Christ is that Jesus came into this world. He bore on himself the oppression and the sin and the brokenness and the destruction that we feel in this world daily, that we feel perhaps even in our lives right now. It's what's oppressing you. It's what you feel right now may even define you. But it's what Jesus says that doesn't have to define you anymore because on the cross, I lifted it. I bore that for you. I was oppressed so that you who feel the oppression can then go free. I was crushed so that you who are crushed by all these other sins and all these other distinguishing factors can now actually been given a new identity of acceptance because I was crushed for you. This is what the good news is, is that we don't have a God that abandons us. We have a God that is active that comes to us and brings his healing to us and then ultimately through us to this world. I want to invite you to worship this God. I'm going to have the team come on up. I'm going to pray. Why don't we all stand? We'll sing to him. We have communion in the back. Communion is a way of reminding ourselves of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Uh, We eat broken bread. We dip it in the little juice that's back there as a way of reminding us of his uh, poured out blood as he bled on the cross. And this is a symbol. It reminds us that what it cost Jesus to bring about our wholeness. What cost Jesus to bring about our wholeness was that he was crushed and wounded for us so that we can be made whole. And I want to invite you into that reality of being made whole. We'll have some people off to the side that want to pray with you. So whatever types of circumstances you may be going through in your life, whatever types of defilement you may have felt have kind of defined you, and you want to be free from that, they want to pray for you. These guys love you. They want to just come alongside you and help you work through whatever types of circumstances you are. And that means that in this church, in this community, there are going to be people that are of all shades of brokenness. Some you feel whole. Some you're just on the verge of some form of brokenness that you don't even know yet that's going to happen at some point in your life. Not to sound doom and gloomy, but the reality is to prepare you to recognize that we have a God that carries us even in moments of trial and hardship. To invite you to place confidence in him, to turn from those things that you once held to and clung to. To like Jesus says, come after me. I will make you fishers of men. I will change you. I'll give you a new heart. So God, right now we want to bring our hearts to you um, and just lay them at your feet. So Holy Spirit, fall and rest upon us and reshape and reform and transform us and our hearts and our desires to be desires, God, that are not, our, that are not shaped and informed by this world, that are not shaped and informed by demonic powers and entities that are unseen forces at work in this world and that are not necessarily even just shaped by our own fleshly desires that we, we know, God, especially the older we get, how oftentimes they delude and deceive us. And they offer us much and they, they, they promise us much and yet always deliver very little. And yet, God, you promise us everything and you give us all that you are. Holy Spirit, move and work and shape us.